Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast for the Institute in Youth and Policy. I'm your host today, Alexander Smith, and I'm joined here today by Stefan Kinsella. Stefan Kinsella is an American intellectual property lawyer, author, and deontological anarcho-capitalist. His legal works have been published by Oxford University Press, Oceana Publications, Mises Institute, Quid Pro Books, and others. Kinsella is a strong opponent of intellectual property, arguing that patents and copyrights should not form part of a proper libertarian law code. He's a proponent of Hans Hermann Hope's theory on argumentation ethics, and he's an atheist having previously been a devout Catholic. Um, okay, so just starting off, for the listeners at home, maybe people who aren't as familiar with uh, anarchist principles and anarcho-capitalism as an ideology, uh, could you just go a little bit more in depth on anarcho-capitalism and its beliefs and uh, governmental structure? Sure. Um, yeah, there's different types of anarchists too. People heard the word anarchy and they associate it with bomb-throwing, um, anti-state, lefty types. Uh, um, I mean, I primarily characterize myself as a libertarian, but I believe a proper understanding of libertarianism is the anarchist one. So there's really there's types of libertarians is how I would look at it. So libertarians typically are people that believe in um, maximum freedom for people expressed in terms of maximum protection of their individual rights. And that would include property rights uh, to property and self-ownership, ownership of their own bodies. Um, and so usually there's sort of two flavors of libertarian. Those who believe in radically minimizing the size and scope of government so that it doesn't threaten and take away these rights. And those who want to go all the way and say, well, any government whatsoever, not just big government. Big government's not the problem, but government itself or the state. And so they're opposed to the state per se. Uh, and that's sort of my camp. Um, we're sometimes called anarcho-capitalist because – and I don't really like the term that much because capitalism is a – it can be confusing or a red flag term to some people. Um, what happened was, like I said, there's left anarchists, there's anarcho-communists, anarcho-syndicalists. So to distinguish ourselves, the anarchist libertarians, we sometimes say anarcho-capitalist. The reason we use the word capitalist is because… Although it's a term, it's a pejorative term used by Marx and others to criticize the capitalist classes. Um, some early advocates of libertarianism, like Ayn Rand, used the word capitalism as sort of a synonym for liberty because she focused on one aspect. So, if you have a free society, a relatively free society where individual rights and property rights are respected, um, then you would have a free market, and in a free market, you would tend to have some kind of industrialization or capitalism emerge. So that's really only one feature of a free society. It's really only one feature of the economic aspect of a free society, but uh, sort of by association, the word capitalism is used as a rough equivocation or equivalence with a free market. Um, but it's really not. It'd be like saying, um, you know. Um, an automobile society is for, is the freedom society, but it's it's just one aspect of it, really. Um, so that's where the terms are emerged um, among libertarians. What we the people that believe in a minimal state or a very small government, we call them minarchist, as opposed to monarchist, like minimal state. And then the anarchists, we we call them anarchists or anarchist libertarians. So that's the basic – and the basic philosophy is that we oppose aggression, and aggression is the use of physical violence against someone who is not themselves 
use violence. So if you ever are the person who starts or initiates force against the person or property of another innocent person, we, we condemn that and oppose that. And all laws should be based upon that principle, like the only just laws are laws that, that stop aggression. Any law that itself doesn't stop aggression, like if a law that uh, criminalizes the use of drugs or the practice of the, of the wrong religion, that is aiming – this using physical force from the state to stop conduct that itself is not initiated force, so that law itself is aggression. So we oppose that, and the anarchists believe that any government laws uh, – well, not any government laws because some laws are justified like laws against murder, but any government existence because the government requires taxation to exist, and the ta taxation itself is aggression because it's the taking of someone's property by the use of force when that person hasn't themselves committed an act of aggression. So it's just theft. So we oppose theft. Therefore, we oppose taxation. Therefore, we oppose states because they depend on, on taxation. That's kind of it in a nutshell. Right, yeah. And you, you mentioned a little bit um, a few minutes ago uh, anarcho-communism, anarcho-syndicalism, those other anarchist ideologies. And we're seeing you know, with the internet um, and the growth of more niche ideologies, not only the growth of anarcho-capitalism, but the growth of anarcho-communism. Um, and with the events of uh, Chaz, I believe, Chaz or Chad, the, the part of the neighborhood that briefly declared independence from the United States and that went down right. really fast. Um, right. Do you think that events like that and kind of leftist anarchists in general are kind of giving anarchism in general a bad name? No, I think, I think, uh, I think that what they're rebelling against is, is state excesses, and, and that's giving the state a bad name. Um, there is some alignment between ourselves and these other types of anarchists. So, for example, we support decentralization as a way to move towards – so the ultimate world of liberty would be 8 billion, 7 billion, 8 billion people, so 8 billion governments basically. Everyone's their own government. Everyone's their own sovereign jurisdiction. Um, so moving from a world of 200 states to a world of 5,000 states would be good. It'd be moving in that direction. So if a little enclave wants to secede and have its own little rules, that's in some ways a movement in the right direction, although the rules that they adopt on that territory might be unlibertarian. Um, however, in a libertarian world, we think that that's fine as long as everyone is free to leave and you respect property rights there. So if you want to have an a communist experiment on your own property, you're free to do that. So the difference is that our views are one way and universal, and theirs are not. So we, in our world of anarcho-capitalism or anarcho-libertarianism, you could have experiments. You could have little socialist enclaves as, as in their own borders as long as they let people leave if they don't like it, right? Um, uh, but they wouldn't permit the opposite. They would not permit there to be capitalist enclaves, partly because they would be so successful they would soon swamp and out, outgrow the others, and they would dominate everything. And they know – I think they would ultimately sense that. They would want to ban and outlaw it. Um, um, Robert Nozick, who's a famous libertarian philosopher, he, he had something in his book Anarchy, State, and Utopia where he said basically um, we libertarians are in favor of – capitalist acts between consenting adults, and the, the anarcho-communists and the syndicalists and the socialists ultimately don't, don't believe in that. So ultimately, if people want to have a private contractual relationship, like let's say I want to hire workers to work at my factory, they regard employer 
the employer-employee relationship is inherently exploitative and some kind of vague violation of the rights of the employee because it's stealing the excess or the surplus labor product, the surplus labor value of his of his work. Um, because the employer is making a profit, that profit has to come from theft of his the labor he put into the products he's selling. So you're you're exploiting him, um, which is false economics. Um, Based, by the way, on Adam Smith. So Adam Smith was the cause of all this. That's why I'm an Austrian economist. The Austrians reject all the, the all the flaws in the labor theory of value of 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 Adam Smith, which led to Karl Marx's labor theory of, of value and, and communism. Um, in any case, um, in a in a free world, if an employer and an employee want to want to work together, uh, that's just a private contractual relationship. It's voluntary, um, and so. Either the socialist permits that or they don't permit it. If they permit it, they're permitting capitalism to form, and if they don't permit it, then they're they're outlawing a private consensual relationship, as Nozick called it, capitalist act between consenting adults. So ultimately, we anarchist libertarians would say that the, the other anarchists are not actually genuine anarchists because all they say is they're against the state. But they don't really give coherent reasons why. They kind of are against the state because they see it as in bed with capitalism, and that's what they're really against. Um, but to enforce their vision of anarchy, they would basically use institutionalized force to outlaw private relations between employers and employees. But that requires a state. You can't outlaw something without use of force, and if you want to really outlaw it, it has to be systematic or institutional force, which is what the state is. So. We don't really think they're genuine anarchists, um, and now they say the same thing about us. They think that we anarcho-capitalists are just apologists who use these levers of power for their advantage. So the problem is the state. The problem is not capitalism. We would agree with the left anarchists that that today's society is not really truly free market or capitalist. We have crony capitalism, but they identify crony capitalism with capitalism. We say that it's a perversion of capitalism. But the ultimate solution is just to get rid of the state, and let's see who's right. As long as they don't use force to outlaw private relationships between employers and employees and things like that. And um, just in the research of getting ready for this episode, I noticed on your Twitter, your bio says you're a Austro-Crypto-Techno-Anarcho-Capitalist Libertarian Theorist. Is this like a, like a joke? Kind of thing because I know that on the internet a lot of people will make jokes and say like oh I, big long thing or if, it, if it's serious it's not really a joke I mean uh, I change we change these things all the time um, Twitter limits how many characters you can have in that little in that little bio so that's all I could fit in there so I put in the hyphens but but yeah I mean I'm into I'm into Bitcoin and crypto I'm I'm an electrical engineer patent attorney so I'm into technology so that's the techno part. So I'm not, I'm not like anti-technology like, like a lot of the old fogies my age are. Uh, I'm not anti-Bitcoin like a lot of the old school Austrians are who are stuck to gold. Um, and I'm Austri Austrian in economics influenced. I'm an anarchist libertarian. I'm a libertarian, and I'm an attorney, and I'm a writer, and I'm a theorist. So all those things are kind of what, what I'm about. So it's not really a joke. It's just an unwieldy, uh, uh, unwieldy short summary. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so you, you mentioned being an attorney. Um, you're a huge fan of eliminating copyright law. Um, this is not something I think that's super popular, but it's definitely getting traction in um, communities of musicians and that sort of thing. Um, why do you think copyright law should be eliminated? 
You go um, it, yeah, it came from – so I actually am a patent and intellectual property attorney. I've been one for about the same time that I've, I've come to the conclusion that they should be abolished, and that was kind of independent. It was, um, it was just from a deeper study of, of property theory and legal theory and Austrian theory and libertarian theory. Um, I wrestled with the idea when I was in law school because I read some of the early libertarian writers like Ayn Rand and even Lysander Spooner, who's a famous early anarchist libertarian writer. Um, and they were pro-intellectual property, and it's called intellectual property, and that means patent and copyright and other things like trademark and trade secret. Um, these things are a little bit different, these legal systems, but they're called intellectual property because they have to – they're not the same as regular property rights, which usually are property rights in physical resources like a car or land or your body or food or you know crops, things like or wood, steel, objects. Um, but because these things cover things that are not physical, um, and everyone is uncertain about these things, like why is this property? Is it just so that so the people that defend these legal systems started calling them? They said, well, they're all types of they're types of property rights, but they're different. They're intellectual, which means that they protect things that are intangible, but that flow from the creative aspect of the mind. Like copyright protects creative works, like novels and paintings and software. And movies and music, and patents protect uh, creative inventions like uh, gizmos and techniques that do practical things. Um, and trademarks protect fanciful marks used to identify the source of goods, and trade secrets protect knowledge that you keep secret that gives you an advantage. So these laws are all protect these things, so they're called intellectual property. But because it's called intellectual property, if you're in favor of capitalism and the free market and the West and the Constitution and America and property rights, then you naturally think, well, this is just part of it. This is a weird part of it, but it's part of it, so I must be in favor of that, um, especially because some of the early writers like, – like it's in the Constitution. Uh, the Constitution protects it. Thomas Jefferson you know, was the first patent commissioner. Um, um, Ayn Rand was in favor of it. Lysander Spooner was in favor of it. So you kind of assume that these things are part of capitalism, although a strange part. Like, like one odd thing about it is that a property right in your car or your home or your watch can last forever theoretically until the thing wears out or is destroyed. Like there's no, there's no time limit on these things, whereas patents expire in about 17 years, and copyrights used to expire in 14 or 28 years, and now they expire about 100, 100 plus years, but they still expire after a finite term, and that's odd, right? You're like, well, why would it expire? <clears throat> and so… I questioned the arguments given for it because they weren't very good. Like there's something weird about the arguments for it, but I assumed they were right. So I kept toying with this idea in law school, and then as I started writing more on libertarian theory and understanding more, and especially when I started practicing it, I, I really turned my attention more to it. I said, I need to figure this out. Maybe, I, maybe I'll be the one who can figure out a good argument for IP law because no one else can. Like I'm a libertarian, and I understand Austrian theory, and I know actually know IP law because I'm practicing it. Like most people writing on it don't really understand it. Like Ayn Rand didn't understand it. Lysander Spooner didn't understand it. It was primitive anyway at the time when he wrote. Ayn Rand thought that the patent system in the U.S. was a first-to-file system, and she was wrong. It's, I'm sorry. She thought it was a first-to-invent system. It was a first-to-file system, so she didn't even understand the law. Um, 
I understood the law, so I thought I could figure it out. But I kept failing, and I usually don't fail. because <laughs> When I set my mind on something, I could do it. I finally realized I kept failing because I was trying to do the impossible. I was trying to justify something that is unjustifiable. And when I finally flipped that over in my mind, I said, let me try the other way around. Maybe the reason I'm failing is because this whole thing is just uh, a mistake. And then everything made sense, and it fell into place. So the ultimate reason is because if you understand the purpose and nature of property rights, um, and you don't really have to be a libertarian to, to think of it this way. This is just the common sense, practical, pragmatic view that the Western legal systems have always worked, the common law and the Roman law in Rome and the civil law in Europe, uh, and even other legal systems, canon law, merchant law, lex mercatoria, and even Islamic law. Um, all legal systems have a certain core, which is like things like you, know, you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't steal, which, which is basically – Property rights in your body and property rights in other things, um, and these property rights are always assigned with a few simple rules like the first person who gets it, who plucks it out of the wilderness when it's unowned has a better claim than someone else because if you didn't have a better claim than someone else, then you would never have the right to use it in the first place, and we would all die. So you know, as a practical matter, the property rights system to work has to let someone use something that's not being used so it can start being used, and he has to have a better claim than later comers because that's what property rights are. It means the guy that has it now has a better claim than someone else coming later because if the later comer had a better right to it, then no property rights would be secure. Like whatever you had, someone else could just take it, and then they're the owner, which means you don't have ownership. So just a very simple idea that… You can use something that doesn't have an owner, and you have a better claim than someone who comes later. That's basically the essence of property rights, and everything else in, pro in property law is just uh, the details or the concrete working out of that or the nuances. But the basic idea is that finders keepers, the first guy that gets something gets it until he gives it to someone else by contract. So contract law comes from that. It's very simple actually, but law is complicated, and socialists complicated more by making exceptions. right? So People think it's complicated, but it's really not. It's very simple. So if you understand that the purpose of property is simply that we live in a world of scarce resources where you, only one person can use this thing at a time, and people can have physical conflict with each other if they don't have property rules saying who gets to own what. And these property rules have to be what I said. It has to be the first guy that gets it owns it until he gives it to someone else. So it's basically first use and contract. That's it. Um, once you understand that, you'll see that copyright and patent in attempting to give property rights in ideas, which is literally impossible. You, you literally cannot have a property right in ideas or information. I'm not just saying I don't like it or I oppose it or it's unjust. Like uh, a law against uh, uh, smoking marijuana is unjust, but it is actually a law. Okay, What it does is it makes your body a slave of the state because the state's the state saying, I have the right to put your body in jail if you smoke marijuana. So really it's a, it's a disguised way of transferring ownership of your body to the state, um, which is unjust, but it, it's a real law, just like conscription is a real law. right? Like we're going to take your body and make you fight a war for us. Um, so what, the, what, a, what, a, what an IP law like a patent or copyright law really is… It's really not a right in ideas because that's impossible because all laws are backed by physical force, and physical force can only be applied to physical things in the world. So you know, if I sue you for violating my copyright in my song, 
what I really want is not the idea because I have the idea in my head. I know how to sing the song. What I really want is your money, right? I want I want the government to use its force to take your money from your bank account and give it to me, right? So it's really a reassignment of rights to money, right? Or if the state tells me you can't sing that song or we're going to put you in jail, then it's really a property right in my body. So all these rights are disguised ways of transferring property rights in real resources like bodies or money or land. Like, like if I have a patent, it means I can get a court order, court force, force from the state courts to give an injunction against me saying I can't use my factory to make iPhones. Okay, So I, ha I own the factory. I own my body. My workers own their body. I own the money I'm paying them with. I own the resources like the glass and the steel and the silicon. I'm using to make the iPhone and the plastic that I'm using to make the iPhone. I'm doing it all within the bounds of my own property. That's all my private property rights, and yet an outsider can tell me I can't use my property in that way. So effectively, he's a part owner of my property with me. He has he is what we call a negative servitude in the law. He has a veto right over how I can use my property, which means he's a co-owner of my property. But I never gave him that co-ownership right by contract. It would be legitimate if I did, but I didn't. I only started doing something on my property, and the government gave him a right called a patent right. So effectively, copyright and patents are grants by the government to the holders of these IP rights, which gives them a property right in my property. So it's a reassignment or, or redistribution of property rights. It's a taking. It's a theft. That's why it's ultimately why it's unjust. It's a redistribution of property rights from owners to non-owners. By government fiat. It's very similar to taxation. The government takes property from me, and they give it to a welfare beneficiary or to a military industrial contractor. So they're stealing my property, and they're giving it to one of their cronies, and they take a little bit on, as their handling fee right? because the government's got to pay their tax collectors and their bureaucrats that, that handle the administration of the funds. But it's basically taking property from me, giving some of it to the government, and giving some of it to people they redistribute it to. And that's what patent rights and copyrights do because it takes property rights that I naturally own like my factory or my printing press, and it gives part of it to the holders of these patent and copyright rights. And, and the copyright office and the patent office get paid salaries from the fees that they pay, so they get a part of my wealth too. So ultimately, that's the principal problem with it. There's lots of pra pragmatic and utilitarian problems with it. Like it doesn't do what it, people claim it does. It doesn't incentivize innovation. It's not necessary for people to create music or to create movies or to write novels or to write poetry or to write blog posts. It's not necessary for people to come up with inventions. It doesn't encourage it. It doesn't create more of it. It actually discourages it, and it distorts it. But those are just secondary or incidental things. The primary arguments given today for it are unprincipled and pragmatic and utilitarian, and they're all flawed. But the primary problem with it is the principled one that I just gave. Right. And so, you know, we're talking about copyright, and there was there was one case that I wanted to bring up um, that was huge in the music community. Um, it was from a few years ago. I think it's still being uh, it was still being in development as of like a year ago. Um, they're working to expand it. There were some people who created a program on a hard drive, and it was a program that essentially created every single possible melody of a song that could ever exist. Yeah, with, it, within it, a certain yeah within a certain number of parameters, a certain, like a certain yeah. a certain resolution bit size was, of a certain um, certain number of melodies. Yeah, it was yeah. in MIDI. It was uh, just one octave, one to eight. 
Um, and it came up with like six, like 88 sextillion possible melodies. And they were able, I'm pretty sure they were able to copyright it. And they did this, they claimed, you know, um, we're trying to help out smaller independent musicians from getting the boot of yeah. um, bigger music. Um, just what are your thoughts on that whole situation? I'm sure you're very familiar um, with it. I, I am. It was a guy named Damien Real. I actually wrote some comments on Facebook about it when it came out. I think it was, let me see here. It was, uh, well, it was a year or two ago, I think. Um, I think it's a stupid stunt, to be honest. I understand the motivation behind it. They're basically trying to show that copyright's absurd without saying that because I don't think they're against copyright. So I think it was just an attention-grabbing stunt to be honest, and I, to the outside observer, it was a creative, clever, useful stunt because they don't understand copyright law. But from my point of view, let, let, I can briefly explain this actual experiment and put them on an actual thumb drive because that actually does no good. That's not how copyright law works. What they were thinking of would work more for patent law because patent law requires you to have a new invention that is not already known publicly in what's called prior art. So if you had some computer generating every known invention and publishing it, that might anticipate any new invention because you'd have a published prior art thing you could show that means the new thing is not new. But copyright doesn't work that way. Copyright works by if you are an independent original creator of an original work, you have a copyright in it even if someone else independently did the same thing. Now, the way copyright works is like let's say imagine a novel. Um, usually inventions do come about at the same time. Like, So you might have three or four or five people working on the transistor or the light bulb at the same time or the airplane. At the same time, because usually inventions come when its time has come, when the when the, when the when the surrounding technology is ready for it to come, people inevitably will do it. If Thomas Edison had not done the light bulb, someone else would have done it. Um, the same thing's not true of like novels like Atlas Shrugged or Great Expectations. Probably no one else would have written it. However, if someone else did write the exact same novel, then they're not prohibited. It's just that. They would both have an identical copyright in the identical work, so both authors would be able to stop others from copying it except for each other, and each one would be able to license it and things like that. It's highly unlikely. In this stupid stunt – so let's say these guys came up with a melody that no one's ever come up with before, and it's buried on some petahardbyte drive. Like no one's ever going to see it because there's too many things to sift through, um, but someone else independently comes up with that melody when composing their song 10 years later. They're still free to use it because they came up with it independently. They didn't like listen to it on that hard drive first. So if you said, aha, this guy tried to copyright his new melody, I'm going to find an identical copy on my thumb drive. It wouldn't do anything legally. I mean, it wouldn't do anything at all. All it means is that all it means is that the guy whose computer program came up with the melody first would be able to sell a song based upon that melody, and he couldn't be stopped by the new guy's song. However, I doubt that the new song would be identical to the melody. It probably would be like a complicated song with the melody inside of it, and that complicated song, you could view that as what's called a derivative work. It would have its own copyright, and you still couldn't practice that because you'd be violating his copyright. So it doesn't prove anything. If you think about it as a thought experiment, everything – because copyrights effectively try to apply to information, and because we live in a digital world where basically anything we can conceive of… … that's informational can be digitized 
like any image. I mean, that's what NFTs are, right, on, on pictures. Any image, any movie, any three-dimensional object, uh, anything can be represented with a string of ones and zeros of a finite length. It might be very long, but it's finite length. So ultimately, you have a string of digits, which is just information, and yet copyright law protects that. So we already know that copyright law is absurd because it tries to protect information. Which is supposedly protected by the First Amendment, right? You're supposed to have freedom of expression and freedom of speech. So the problem is the copyright law is inherently non-objective and contrary to human nature, and therefore it leads to absurd consequences. But what the courts do, because the court's job is not to make the law, is to interpret the law. In the old days, the law was about justice, and the law would develop in the common law and in the Roman law. Through judges' attempts to find just solutions to problems, and gradually they would find a solution that would be used later and built on, and so the law would develop in a more or less just way. But nowadays, law is dominated by statute and legislation. It's just decrees of, of a government committee, which has no bearing on justice. So the job of ju judges are no longer judges. They're just bureaucrats whose job is to read words and interpret them, whether the result is just or not. And not only that, there's no guarantee that the, the law announced by the legislature today is going to be compatible with the law yesterday. So you have inconsistent laws, and then the judges are forced to try to reconcile them. In the common law, every time you have a new, new, a new a case of first impression, the judge tries to reconcile his new rule with what's gone before. He might overrule a decision on occasion, but it, he was reluctant to do so. That's what stare decisis or precedent's all about. You try to make the new rule – so the law… It grows organically and advances incrementally, and the new piece fits in with the last pieces, so it's usually overall organic and consistent, whereas statutory law, there's no guarantee of that whatsoever. So for example, you have the copyright law, which is passed by statute in 1790 based upon the 1789 constitution, and then you have the First Amendment enacted in 1791, which protects – freedom of speech and freedom of the press, and obviously copyright is totally incompatible with freedom of the press because freedom of the press means you can print whatever the hell you want, but copyright means you can't print what you want. So they're totally intention. The, the courts say they're intention, so they have to balance it, right? And they do the same thing with free speech like – so for example, um, because the government copyright law prohibits, uh, uh, prohibits the use of <laughs> anti-circumvention technology to circumvent a copyright protections uh, like an encryption scheme that – like remember when the DVDs used to be protected by this DECSS code, um, and people would buy a CD. They would just try to rip it so they have a backup copy, but to do that – actually, they had a fair use right to do that under copyright law. However, they had to break an encryption scheme that was designed to protect copyright. And that was illegal under another statute that they that the Congress had passed. So that was a crime. And yet that that violated freedom of speech or freedom of the press. So people – I don't know if you recall this. It's probably before your time, but people were walking around wearing T-shirts that had the code on their T-shirt, like a series of ones and zeros, which if you just type that code in, it could help you unlock the DECSS code and, and rip a DVD. And the idea is are you going to ban me wearing a T-shirt that just has information on it? So they were showing already what this Damien Real guy was trying to do, right? Um, so – the stunt is clever and interesting, but ultimately it doesn't prove anything. All it proves is that copyright's absurd and unjust, but we already know that. And 
and it doesn't even prove it in the way they want to because they misunderstand copyright law. So right. it gets into the weeds, but to really understand that, um, I, there's lots of other ways you can understand that copyright's absurd. I mean, look, there are people that have gone to prison. Aaron Schwartz, this young guy, I think he was 26 year old, he committed suicide. He was one of the inventors of RSS and lots of other amazing things we use still to this day. And he had up, he had downloaded some academic journal articles onto his computer in a closet at Columbia or some college, and he was facing decades in federal prison for criminal copyright violation because the copy the copyright law no longer requires a showing of actual damage, but it has statutory damages and criminal penalties, which which by the way I believe violate the Eighth Amendment. Which bans cruel and unusual punishment and excessive fines. So I think that the copyright law violates the First Amendment and the Eighth Amendment, actually, and actually the Fifth Amendment and due process, and so does patent law. But the courts, instead of saying that, they just say, well, we have to balance these things. They do the same thing with antitrust law, by the way, antitrust law and patent law. Patent law grants a monopoly to someone, and then antitrust law says you can't have monopolies. So, so the courts say, well, the patent law and copyright and patent law and antitrust law are in tension with each other. They're not in tension; they're just flat out incompatible because they're both unjust laws, actually. But they they butt heads against each other, and these poor judges, these poor fake judges, have nothing, no choice but to try to reconcile them. Um, so that's the system we have now. It's a totally corrupt, unjust, illegal system that has nothing to do with justice anymore. Right. Yeah. Uh, you say the system's unjust. What? I had no idea. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I would say this is, it's think the world's dying, but it feels like this corruption and stuff has been going on for a while. But yeah, if you think about, you know, the, uh, the old days, people say ignorance of the law is no excuse. That rule used to make sense when the law was natural, when, when we could say with a straight face that, well, the common law and man's law. Is just a fleshing out of the law engraved on man's heart, right? That was the old expression. So we all know that you shouldn't commit murder and theft. We all know this, or you should know. If you don't know, you're not fit to be a human, right? Live in society. And the common law just worked all this out. It said, okay, you should respect contracts. You should respect people's property. You shouldn't commit murder or theft or rape or assault, arson. It's all common sense. So it's not unfair to say someone can't say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize it was illegal to murder my neighbor. It's like you did know because it's written on your heart. Everyone knows this, right? But the law has become a mountain of legislation. It's just arbitrary edicts issued by the state, and there's like dozens of shelf feet of space in libraries of these books with these arcane laws and regulations. No, no single person – not only does no single person know what the law is, no one knows even how many laws there are. right? No one even knows how many, um, and so… To say that ignorance of the law is no excuse now is an absurd perversion of justice. Of course it should be an excuse. Like how am I supposed to know I can't put a penny into a parking meter instead of a quarter or whatever? You know, I mean how am I supposed to know that? No one knows it. It's impossible to know, and so it's inherently unjust to hold someone to account. This is, by the way, the motivation behind the old idea that if you do have a statute and you change the law, it can only have what's called prospective effect. That is effects going forward. You can't have a retrospective law. You can't make something illegal that someone did yesterday that wasn't illegal yesterday. That's inherently unfair. Everyone knows that. Now, why is that unfair? It's unfair because you need notice. You need to be on notice of what's illegal. Like if everything that's illegal is common sense, 
you're already on notice because it's common sense, right? Murder, theft, etc. Contract breaches. But if you're going to start making things illegal that are not obviously illegal, then people need to know. So it needs to be written in a statute, passed by a legislature, done with due process, published in a something everyone can read, and widely known. And that and you can only know something that's coming in the future. You can't know something that might come in the future. I mean, you know, it has to already be written down. So that's why prospective laws are the only fair laws. But by the same token, if we have so many laws that no one can know what the law is, you shouldn't be liable for it unless you actually knew either, right? But of course, that's not the law because then they wouldn't be able to enforce the law with discretion against whoever the victims of the state are. The way the law is now is we are all lawbreakers. They've turned everyone into lawbreakers, everyone. We're all lawbreakers. We all break the law many times a day because it's impossible to comply with the law because the laws are contradictory, and there are too many to know what they are. Right? Um, like for example, we have a Second Amendment right to bear arms. right? Even the court recognized this to some degree in Heller. Uh, but some states say that you can't bear arms in public if you wear a mask and conceal your identity, and yet the state is now requiring you to wear a mask because of COVID. So they're basically requiring you to violate the law to exercise your constitutional rights. But this happens all the time with, with statutory or legislated law. Right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Um, thank you again for coming on. This was actually a really good discussion. Um, yeah, uh, for those listening um, to this podcast, uh, links to uh, uh, Stevens Kinsella's uh, Twitter and other social medias and things like that will be in the description. Um, go ahead and check those out and the link pro links provided. Uh, thank you, Kinsella, for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Right. Here we go. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to continue to support us, you can do so by checking out our Instagram pages at YIP Institute and at WatchFurgum. You can also look at our website at www.yipinstitute.com. Make sure to follow our page as we upload multiple videos weekly. Have a good day.